I would direct your attention to the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin in the sixth verse and work our way down through the end of the chapter into the first few verses of chapter 5. The irony of our Christian experience, the irony being that we have a great treasure in these physical bodies of ours that are so prone to weakness and that are eventually going to wear out and die. This chapter really helps us put everything in a proper perspective. Sometimes our minds run away with with ourselves and it's good to be brought back down and settled into the reality and built upon the foundation of solid biblical truth and understanding of the gospel and how it affects our lives, how it's immensely practical, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. On a whole, this second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians is a lengthy defense of his apostleship. The fact that he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ had been called into question by false teachers, and this is his lengthy defense and response to that, and tucked in all throughout this letter of his defending himself and Timothy and the other apostles as being true apostles, we find some very practical application of gospel truth. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. I want you to read with me verse 6 of the fourth chapter down through the end of this chapter. We'll come back and, and set the context for this after we read it. Verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, and as we read through, notice how often he contrasts. He'll make a statement of truth and then give a response to it. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our own body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, there he's quoting Psalm 116, We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We'll come back and read the first few verses of the fifth chapter. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the treasure of the gospel, thankful for the power of the gospel, thankful to having been called by you to be those that proclaim this gospel. Lord, would you give us an understanding of these verses and encourage our hearts from them? Would we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake? Amen. Verse 7 details for us what we could call the irony of our Christian life or our Christian experience. Two things set in opposition in the seventh verse. One, the very power of God. The other, fragile by nature, easily broken. We know this verse so well, whether or not you realized as we sang this morning, there were several allusions to this verse and the words that we sang. And Paul writes here again, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So let's see both aspects of this verse. The treasure that he speaks of here is greatly defined in the verse that precedes it, in the sixth verse, which reminds us of the salvation that we have experienced of God and the greatness of it and how it came about and all of these things. Let me read that verse again. And notice that Paul compares a spiritual birth or the coming of faith. He compares that to God's original creation. Just like in the beginning, God spoke and things sprang into existence. This is what Paul is referring to here in the sixth verse when he says, It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are a, if you are a believer... You have experienced this type of new birth that Paul refers to here. The God of grace and glory, the omnipotent one, just as he in the beginning spoke words into a a vast darkness, spoke into your heart, and he gave the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, and he did so in a very specific way. And this is the way Paul says it here, in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, is the very power of God unto salvation. The most powerful thing that we know The gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you often think in those terms? Think about the power exerted by God in your own life, overcoming your sin, overcoming every obstacle that was in the way of you becoming a believer in Christ. Overcoming all of those things. And yet we get into the seventh verse, 
And as great as this gospel message is, as powerful as it is, the blessing that it is, the miracle that it is, Paul says we have this treasure, this message of the gospel, the experience of the gospel. We have the greatest, most powerful thing that God has given and made known. He says we possess this in an earthen vessel. You know, as I do, the scriptures tell us that these bodies of ours are made of dust. And they will return to that dust once our spirit departs and goes on to be with the Lord. So when we take this whole package, we have a body created of God from the dust of the ground that will return to dust. And all along that journey, there is a decaying that begins really at birth. But yet inside this fragile, weak, frail package, we have what Paul here calls great treasure. And here we sit, as you look around, every believer in the room is a living illustration of this truth. Now, granted, this has a specific application to Paul and Timothy, This is coming to us right here in the fourth chapter where Paul is defending himself and goes through some of the things that he has suffered on the sake and behalf of Christ. But yet, really it's true on a broader scale of every believer. You possess, by the gift and grace of God, the gospel residing in you by the Spirit of God. You have believed it unto the saving of your soul, and you are called now to give out this gospel to those who are in need. Why did God do things like this? You've thought this before. If the Lord wanted to save someone, why would he not send Michael the archangel, arrayed in all of his glory and splendor, to announce the the message of of good tidings, just like in, we read in the early chapters of Luke how the birth of Jesus was announced to lowly shepherds by a heavenly host. Why wouldn't the Lord do that? Why does he instead choose to use someone like me and someone like you to make this great treasure known to others? Well, Paul tells us the answer to that in the seventh verse. So that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So that God would receive all the glory. So that God would be preeminently praised. So that there be no mistake as to who is responsible for both the making known of the gospel, the believing of the gospel, the authorship of the gospel. Everything about this treasure that we possess in an earthen vessel, this is God's way of reminding us of our own fragile nature and both the beauty of what he has made known to us. Look at that phrase again. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. It's a mystery of all mysteries, right? That God would take someone like Moses, who could, who could barely put a legible sentence together by his own admission, make him the mouthpiece for what he is about to do, We read that recurring theme throughout the scriptures, how he calls 
the weak unto himself. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. God uses the weak things of the world so that he would display his glory in the greatest sense. The next verses give us an illustration of this truth. And here again, we're specifically reading the experience of Paul, but can't you see yourself in some of the descriptions in these verses? You know what it's like to be hard-pressed yet not crushed. You know what it's like to have this, this earthen vessel taxed by the toil of labor or disease or, or illness. He goes on and he says, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Have you ever wondered why God does the things that he does? Why he allows certain things to come into your life? Why he allows things to come into the lives of others? Why he didn't do something differently? We're all at times perplexed by the will of God, but yet because we have this treasure residing in us, this message of gospel hope, we are not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Isn't one of the greatest truths of the gospel that Jesus has said, I will not forsake you. I will be with you. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. In this 11th verse, particularly Paul's experience here, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, life, excuse me, so then death is working in us, but life in you. And then he quotes the 116th Psalm here. He says, we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written. I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and speak. And here begins a series of things that Paul says that he knows. And the word that's used here for, for know or knowing is knowledge in its fullest sense. Knowledge that has come to fruition. Knowledge that serves as the foundation for much of the Christian life. The things that Paul is going to say that he knows, and that we too can and should know by, by help of the illumination of the Spirit, is the knowledge which holds us together and keeps us going. It's the knowledge that, though he didn't say it this way back in these verses when he says, we are hard-pressed yet not crushed, we could insert in the middle of every one of those statements, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet because of what we know, we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but yet because of what we know, we're not in despair. We are struck down, yet because of what we know, we are not destroyed. And that could play out with every one of those statements of Paul. So let's ask the question. 
Given the irony of the situation, and that again is that there is great treasure residing in these earthen vessels of ours, what are the things that we know that keep us pressing on in this battle? What keeps us from not growing weary and well-doing? That's the great admonition of Paul in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. It's reiterated here, again in the 16th verse, we're going to see here in just a moment, but it's not unimportant or unnoteworthy that the Lord very often in Scripture calls us to persevere and to press on and not grow weary in well-doing and not to faint and not to give up. The nature of the earthen vessel is to give up. The nature of the earthen vessel is to grow weary and tired. And when the cracks begin to appear, to respond. The balancing truth is that inside these vessels of ours, there is great treasure that resides. And because there is great treasure there, there are things that we can know for sure. Aren't you thankful that hope, when we speak of it in the Christian life, is steadfast and sure? It's fixed. And so we get down to the 14th verse. The first part of this knowledge that Paul is reminding the Corinthians that applies to himself, to them, and to us. Even though we can so relate to all of these experiences of his, what keeps us going, first of all, is to know in verse 14... That when this body does eventually wear out, and it will. When our soul separates from our body, which is the definition of death. Then the things that the scriptures made known to us that we can know. Undergird us with strength. And Paul says it this way. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. The resurrection, a final state of receiving a glorified body. This is one of the things, and it's interesting that it's the first thing that Paul points to as a stabilizing doctrine as we go throughout this life possessing the greatest treasure in the weakest package. When this body wears out, we will be raised up just as Jesus was raised and presented. And then notice verse 15. All things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Salvation from beginning to, get, from beginning to end is of the Lord and unto the glory of God. Of the Lord. Thanksgiving abounding to the glory of God. And then we get to this, this bit of contrast again when Paul says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. I love the King James rendering here. To which for we faint not. The New American Standard also uses the phrase, not losing heart. 
not fainting. Reminding of the proverb, if you faint in the day of adversity, how does that end? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Notice the truth that Paul here gives us in verse 16. We do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing. I think if we were to go around the room, everyone would agree, all the adults at least would agree, that the outward man is perishing. We are weaker today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we will be yet weaker still. We can sometimes mask over that. I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't be good stewards of the bodies the Lord has given us, take good care of them. It certainly prolongs our days of usefulness to the Lord. We should do that, but that doesn't negate this truth. That daily, notice Paul's words, day by day, the outward man is perishing. It's growing old. It's wearing out. It's succumbing to the effects of sin upon it. And given time, it will eventually return to dust. So we see why these truths are so important. Why we are not losing heart because this is what we know. The outward man is perishing, but yet the inward man is renewed day by day. These are working on opposite ends of the spectrum. And obviously the application here is to a believer, someone who has faith in Christ, who has good hope. They correspond just as day by day the outward man is perishing. The inward man is being renewed day by day. So the next time you feel keenly the effects of time upon your body, the effects of sickness or disease upon your body, thank the Lord for this corresponding truth. That just as rapidly as your body is in decline, your inner man, your new man that Paul commonly calls us to put on, put on the new man, put off the old man, that new man, your spiritual self is being renewed day by day. So the old man is getting closer and closer to the grave, the new man is getting closer and closer to glory. And this happens every single day that you... And I awake. And then verse 17 is one of those, is an aspect of this stabilizing truth when Paul says, Our light affliction, and I suppose perhaps only Paul could call what we read here in verses 7 and through 12 light affliction. The experiences that he endured for the sake of being the apostle sent by Christ to preach the gospel, unique and unparalleled. But yet, he still calls them light affliction for a moment. What are these light afflictions doing? They are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Notice the contrast, light and heavy. 
What is light here is the affliction. What is heavy here is the weight of glory that they are working for us as we are being sanctified by them. Which reminds us the reason that we go through these light afflictions is to be further sanctified, further conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18, I want you to see the word look. While we do not look. This is an interesting word. It means to peer down into something. To give it a very close look of inspection. To put something under a microscope and look at every small detail of what's taking place that the naked eye just can't see. And then when we look at this word and see how Paul uses it, he says, we do not look or inspect to fix our eyes on or give undue attention to the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. Spiritual, what we might even call gospel truths. For the things which are seen are temporary. Temporal, which means they are confined to this life only. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So, where are we to fix our eyes as Christians? Well, Hebrews tells us, 12th chapter, to fix our eyes on Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. But what are we most prone to do? We're most prone to fix our eyes on the trouble around us, peer down into it, inspect it, look at it, become overwhelmed by it, and to the point of even losing heart, throwing our hands up in the air. God, give us grace not to respond to these momentary light afflictions in that way. And then we come in first, first verse of the fifth chapter to another of the things that we are to know. If we are to be able to operate in this life with a great treasure in an earthly, weak, fragile package, the first thing that he wanted us to know is that when the package finally wears out, we'll be raised up again. The second thing is very close to that. Verse 1 of chapter 5, For we know... Let me ask you before we read this, how certain are you of these things? Are these truths as stabilizing to you as they were to Paul? This is what he says, We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. And there again, he's referring to the physical body. If this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. Another contrast, these paragraphs are full of of contrasting truths. Paul refers to his his physical existence as merely a tent that has been pitched for a while. But yet he is referring to his expectation as having a building from God. And this is a well-furnished, well-constructed building of God, a house, he says, that is not made with hands and is eternal in the heavens. 
And I think we can relate to this truth that he says here in the third verse. Every Christian has a yearning, and I think it gets more zealous as time goes on. Every Christian has a yearning to be clothed and to live in that final destination, this building from God. Paul says, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. What is he talking about with all of this language of clothing? Well, he says it very plainly. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. That we would no longer be wrapped in this earthen vessel. But that we would be completely swallowed up by the eternal life given to us by God. And Paul says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit of God has come to us at the point of our conversion when we were justified in the sight of God as a down payment of sorts of what we will experience more fully in the age yet to come. And the Spirit of God here as a guarantee is sent to us by the Father and the Son to see us through, to see the work to a full completion. So that we don't do exactly what he has said we are prone to do, and that is lose heart or faint. Here's his confidence. We're always confident. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. It just means we are not in the Lord's fully manifested presence. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Death is defined as the separation of soul and body. The soul which animates and gives life to these physical bodies, once it is removed... What happens, children, what happens to your loved ones who die? Well, these verses tell us when our soul is absent from our body, we are present with the Lord. Many of you, as I can right now, can call to mind those of your loved ones whose bodies lie in a cemetery somewhere, but yet whose Spirits are even now with the Lord. These are great gospel truths. These are the part of the treasure that he spoke of in verse 7 but of the previous chapter. But here in the seventh verse of chapter 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, even well pleased to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So quickly, before we move on to the last, the first three things that we've seen, 
to give us some stability as we live this Christian life with this great treasure of the gospel in a very weak, frail package. The things that stabilize us, first of all, knowing that when we die, we'll be raised by Christ, just as he was raised from the dead. We know that when this house, this tent of a body is destroyed, we'll have a building from God. We're confident that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But there is something else here that Paul says we know, and it causes us to act. And it's, he's shifting. It's different than what he said thus far. So far, he's been speaking about light affliction, working for a, a weight of glory. He's referred to the assurance of once these bodies go on and return to dust, that we will have this great inheritance given to us by the Lord of of finally and ultimately a fully glorified, resurrected body. But when we get to verse 9, there is something totally different that he has in mind here. But he uses the same word in verse 11, the word knowing. Again, it's a word that speaks of a full knowledge. And listen as I read verses 9, 10, and 11. Based upon all of these things that we've looked at so far, therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent. That's his way of saying whether living or, die, or having died, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice the all-inclusiveness of this verse. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body. You're responsible for what we do. There are consequences for what we do. Some temporal. Some eternal. Whether good things or bad things. And this is the last in this paragraph that Paul says of what he knows. And he refers to the fear or the terror of the Lord. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Persuade men to do what? Persuade men to come to Christ. Why? Because we know the fear or the terror of God. And we know the temporary nature of life in this world. And we can begin to compile all kinds of truths to build a case, knowing that it is, according to Hebrews, the writer there appointed to man once to die, and after that the judgment. Contrary to so much false teaching and false religion, no one can pray for you after you die and redeem your soul. You can't go to a fairy tale place called purgatory and work off your sin. Death is final in every count. The death of the physical body signals the end of the day of grace or salvation. 
That's why it's imperative as you read throughout the scriptures. That's why Paul has given his life. If you finish out reading this chapter, that's why Paul would say and speak of his being an ambassador, calling men to come to Christ because he knows the terror of the Lord. We are right when we extol the grace and mercy of God because he is full of both. But when we stop short of also making known his terror or his fear, then we haven't presented the whole picture. God is indeed a God of grace and a God of mercy who is forgiving. The God of second, third, fourth chances, however many that we need. But there is an end to his grace. There is an end to the day of salvation. And that's when we must begin to speak of the justice of God, the wrath of God, the terror of the Lord. And notice how this is another contrast to the believer, death. Paul is, refer, is, is continually in this paragraph comforting, comforting, Comforting. When you die, you'll be raised. When this tent is folded up, you'll have a building from God. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. All of this is comforting to the believer to the point of death, but see how greatly contrasted it is with the unbeliever who dies in his sin or her sin. Paul says, I know something else. I don't just know all these great comforting truths for believers. I know something that makes me persuade men, that makes me persevere in this calling of apostleship and as being an ambassador. It's the terror of God. Skip down to verse 20 of the fifth chapter where he says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, Isn't that interesting? Treasure in earthen vessels. God pleading through this weak, frail body of mine and yours to other people. As, excuse me, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you. What does that word mean? It's a strong word of emotion. It's a strong word of appeal. And it's not wrong, really, to see it as begging. What is he begging? What is he imploring? On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So that these great comforting truths in the face of death can be yours. So you, can, you too can have this treasure of gospel truth inside your earthen vessel. We implore you, be reconciled to God. What that implies is that every person born into the world is born into a state of being at enmity with God. Reconciliation is bringing in the end of that enmity. And there's only one way that this 
end comes. There is only one way that peace is made between a holy and righteous God and those who have fallen headlong into sin. And it's detailed for us in verse 21. Would you be reconciled to God? Then this is what you must believe. Would you be reconciled to God? Then this is the power of God unto salvation for you. Paul says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. What humility by Christ to submit himself to the will of the Father at Calvary to be made sin, to be considered sin, to be reckoned sin, to have all of the sin imputed to him. So that the transaction could be made that those who believe, trust, repent of their sin, come in faith to him, might become the righteousness of God in him. There's not a simpler verse of gospel in your Bible than the 21st of 2 Corinthians 5. Christ on the cross of Calvary, bearing the sin of his people, being forsaken of his Father, being punished, though innocent, even to the point of death, raised up, declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection, so that those dead in sin might become the righteousness of God in him. So let me ask you a very simple question. Do you believe this? Do you believe all of these truths, every one of them? Treasure in earthen vessels, raised up, building from God, absent from the body, present with the Lord, the fear or terror of God. So just, I'm going to use Paul's language here to close. Pleading, imploring on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Come in faith. Turning to God, he will save you. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would so convict you that you can do nothing, at, nothing else. We sang that old hymn this morning. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that these truths that we've looked at this morning are indeed for our comfort. These are things that we can know with great certainty. We're thankful, Lord, for your, your plan of salvation that includes giving us great treasure to preach, to teach, to proclaim, to share. And Lord, we pray that you would draw men unto yourself, draw women, boys, and girls to yourself, and save them.
we conclude with Paul, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, we implore, we beseech that all would come to faith in Christ. Lord, grant it unto your own praise and glory. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.